0: Memorial Day weekend is a time that we remember those who gave the ultimate sacrifice in the service of our country. <clears throat> Some of you may not know that it's not just about a three-day weekend, but, it's, but it was started somewhere either in Pennsylvania, New York, or there are three or four other places that say, say that they're the father and, or mother of Memorial Day and the remembrance that this is about. It started in about 1865. And it started at that time because about 621,000 men were killed in the Civil War on both sides. And put that into perspective, as a percentage of population, that would mean that we would have currently fought a war where 6,221,000 people died. Think about that for a minute. How many families do you suppose that touched or would touch if that were today? And so some some folks got together and thought it would be good to remember. But the thing about memory is, especially painful memories, is that we can't maintain them. We can retain the memory. I, I don't mean that, but we can't retain that feeling that caused us to remember because it's too painful. The, the human mind and the human heart just can't maintain that level of stuff and, in fact, is designed to allow grief to eventually erode enough that it's bearable. You know, people always say, well, time will heal. Time doesn't heal. Time just makes things bearable. Unfortunately, sometimes we forget those things that we must remember. So as we spend this holiday... Remember that we are free because someone sacrificed. <clears throat> and it's good, too, that the last song that you sang for we sang together was Amazing Grace. It was written by a guy that was a slave ship captain who found Christ. He wrote the song to describe his own experience, his own estimation of himself in light of God's grace. He figures there were 10,000 souls that he brought into captivity. And he didn't ever think he could pay for it. That was what that war was fought over. Not only, but primarily the thing that we know that the Civil War was about was about captivity of those who were in slavery. And the ending of it. And so, too, (laughs) it fits in with John, the third chapter. Because John, the third chapter, is about the ending of slavery. It's about the ending of captivity. It's about the ending of the history that had led to that point. The chapter is an interesting one. Because we miss the most fascinating part often. I mean, I I have this little Bible that I, when my mom passed away, I picked this one up. It must have been the one that she studied out of because there's lots of notes in here, lots of verses underlined. John 3.16 has a little special circle around it in her Bible. Because... Obviously, it was something that she'd looked at often, Uh, and it kind of falls open to that spot. But John 3.16, how how many of you here could confidently quote John 3.16? Go ahead, just raise your hands. Confident. Yep. How many sporting events have you seen where that's somewhere in the background? Hundreds, right? Thousands, maybe. There's people who do not even honor God who can quote John 3.16. John 3.16 was probably the first verse you memorized and I memorized. Somewhere in Sunday school, somebody said, let's memorize John 3.16. Because it's it's been seen as that that clear, bold statement of the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news, the gospel, the gospel itself contained in a verse. Verse. But here's the thing that always strikes me. John 3:16 was given, as the words of Christ to one my, man at night in secret, who had come because he is afraid of his peers, seeing him and he, thinking maybe <laughs> he's somehow a traitor to our way of being. So he'd come at night because he didn't want anybody to question his motives. He didn't didn't want anybody to see him. He was a little ashamed that he wanted to come and talk to this teacher, this Jesus. It's at night. It's in secret. Wow. Consider that for a moment. The most well-known passage of the New Testament is a secret message to one person. Hmm. Hmm. So I think we need to look at the setting of that. Now, last week, if you were here, Scott really set out the the concept of who this man Nicodemus was. He's was a ruler among the Jews. He was a Pharisee. He was not only a Pharisee, but he is one of the top Pharisees. And so that you know, a Pharisee, in fact, their very name means set aside for holiness. It co- goes all the way back to um, when the temple was being basically renovated and restored, they found the scriptures that while they were in captivity, there's that word again, they hadn't been able to have read. And so it was read to all the people and they began to weep. This is in the Old Testament. Because they had not heard the beauty of and the grandeur, really, the, the immensity, the worshipfulness of the Word of God that was written that they might know Him. And they just wept at the hearing. They brought in lunch, they brought in dinner. They stayed all night to hear the word read. I'm going to go a little shorter than that if that's okay with you. But this was, you know and from that time, there was these, these this group that decided that they were going to so adhere to the rule of God, so adhere to it, that they would be so perfectly following God's will that they could be an example to the people. They came to believe that if they could have one day, just one day, where everybody was holy, nobody sinned, then God would come and that would be that. So... I don't know how you live with that kind of level of failure, but hey. Um, (laughs) But what it did was it caused these folks to become, I won't say angry exactly, but they became very warlike about their adherence to the law. You know how that would work. I mean, if you spend all of your effort, all of your thinking, all of your study, and all of your heart, all of your life, to be as holy as you possibly can. To read the scripture and follow it as accurately as you possibly can. What are you going to think of everybody else that doesn't do it? Well, that would be that'd be a Shiite Baptist boy. Oh boy. Yes, sirree. That would be one of those. It, it, it got to where it was. You know, it was so difficult and so frustrating that nobody would follow the law so completely and, and it just got to be unbearable, just unbearable. They, they even they started writing laws so it made it, quote unquote, easier for people to follow the law. They started writing laws like, okay, you, ha- you don't have to say grace before a meal as long as it's smaller than a piece of popped popcorn. That's in the law. I mean, goodness, gracious, how can you keep track of all that stuff? That was Nicodemus. Not only was it Nicodemus, but he was really good at it because he was one of the rulers among the people. He was strongly in the word. And he comes to Jesus at night and he's ashamed, because he't want to know, he don't want his buddies to think that stuff. but at the same time, there's something about this guy. I mean, after all, he's been healing the sick and raising the dead and giving the blind back their sight. There's got to be something about him. I'm going to go find out, but I'm going to keep my skepticism because I just don't know. I mean, here's this this is interesting. Here's this guy that has tried to live his whole life, be holy, never sin, who has come before the one who had never sinned. (laughs) He's meeting the very example of what he was striving for, and he asks him some questions. You know, we know he said, "Well, he didn't even really ask a question. He just made a statement. We know you must be God from God because you do all these amazing things. You, you, so, therefore, I'll call you Rabbi, a teacher." I wanted to kind of know. I mean, he's coming to say, you know, I kind of want to know." And he says, "You got to be born again." Jesus did. I don't get it. How do I do that? I'm an old man. How do? Yeah, unless you're born of the Spirit, wander in the Spirit. Jesus explains these things about the Spirit and so forth. And then we get to verse 11 and Jesus begins to sort of say, okay, we're not going to take this easy. We're going we're to go right for it. We're going we're to get right at it. And he says in verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know. Now, Jesus, when he says we, he's talking about himself and his, and his disciples. He says, we speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen. And you do not receive our witness. He's t- speaking to this man who has seen the things happen, has understood that there's something about this Jesus that it's worth at least taking a re- risk to come in secret and seek what he's all about but he says, But you don't receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? You know, if I if I just give it to you simple and you don't believe, how are you gonna believe when I give you the really deep stuff? So Jesus says, Okay. Let's do it this way. Jesus turns and and because Nicodemus is so steeped in the scripture and histories and traditions of his people. Jesus turns to use an example from that tradition and history. And he says, As one who has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, uh, and and no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. Now, if you go back to Ezekiel, you'll see that Ezekiel saw, uh, saw a wheel. He saw a ladder. Uh, Jacob saw a ladder uh, also. Uh, and in both of those instances, if you go to Daniel, you'll see that there were the three guys thrown in the fiery furnace. Each of them, or the king in the fiery furnace example, they each of them said, I saw someone that looked like the son of man. That, that title came up in each of those places. And so Jesus said, okay, remember those passages where it talked about somebody coming down out of heaven to give word about what was to take place, to give some warning, some some solace, some protection, some safety. They were all called the Son of Man. I wonder who that was. He says... And earlier he said, if I tell you earthly things, how are you going to believe heavenly things? And he says, so he's really saying, I'm that man. I'm that one. I can come. I'm going to tell you some stuff that I know from heaven because that's where my my witness is from. And so then he says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. Hmm. Jesus compares himself to a serpent. Anybody know any place else in Scripture where a serpent, serpent is included in any passage of Scripture in a positive way? In the garden, the serpent was more crafty than the other gar- animals that were creation in the kingdom. And he tempted Eve, and he tempted Adam. The devil in Revelation is called the old serpent. Hmm. Jesus is referring to an Old Testament passage again. Because what else would be more meaningful to Nicodemus than a passage from from his scripture? This is from um, Numbers 21, starting in verse 4. It says, from Mount Hor, this is the people of Israel. This is in in the Exodus. They've been wandering in the wilderness. And and they're out, you know, (laughs) where it's hot and it's dry and it's whatever. And so they've been eating manna. Manna, 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 manna. Everyday manna. They get up, they get manna. They go to bed, they have manna in the morning, you know. Um, manna. Manna is a Hebrew word that means, what is it? That's what it is. They got up one morning and they said, what is it? (laughs) Manna. (laughs) And that's what they had every day. They couldn't store it up. They had to eat whatever was given that day because they had to trust that God would give them manna again the next morning so they'd have something to eat. Trust in God. God will be there every day. From Mount Horror, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. Are we there yet? How much further? Can you imagine a million people all like your kids in the back seat? Yeesh! <laughs> <laughs> the people became impatient on the way, and they spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there was, for, uh, for there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Wow. Have you ever gone to Thanksgiving dinner and you say to your mom after it's all done, I loathe this worthless food. (laughs) Prepared with love and, yeah. yeah. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against God and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. Their prayer is that, that serpents be taken away. Uh, we're t- this, this is worse. This is bad. I mean, okay, we sinned, and, they, and the serpents are here, and oh, are fiery serpents, and they're terrible, and some of us are dying, and it's just awful. I mean, just tell God to take them away. We're sorry. Take them away. Take them away. That would be good. We want them taken away. That's our prayer. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to, Sir, to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Well, there's kind of layers there too, and this isn't our main passage, and this could be a great sermon all by itself. But here's the thing. God didn't take the serpents. Their sin brought the serpents. Their their complaining brought the serpents. God didn't take them away. They were still there. He just gave them a way out. Now, later we know from history that some people took that bronze serpent and they began to worship it as a god. The serpent, it was made out of bronze. I mean, it, was, it wasn't even gold. It wasn't even valuable. We still see this symbol today. It's called a caduceus. Anybody know what a caduceus is? The medical profession uses that to talk about healing. And the healing didn't come because of the caduceus. It didn't come because of the bronze serpent. It didn't come because of something Moses made. It didn't come from any of that. What it came from was people looking up and saying, I trust God's promise. I trust God's promise. And they lived. And those who didn't, didn't. Simple as that. Nicodemus knows that story. And he knows the implications of that story. He knows that it's by faith, not by some graven image, that the people were saved. It was by faith. It was by faith. And so then he says to Nicodemus to, to really put a meaning, to really put power behind what that whole thing was about. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes... May in him have eternal life. Wow. Nicodemus is saying, You mean you mean it's about faith? It's not about what I do or how well I do it. I can't even do it well enough. Seriously? You just have to believe. Hmm. Wow. There was a man named Jairus, was ruler of the temple, and he heard that Jesus was coming, and his little daughter was sick, sick, sick. He's afraid she's going to die. But there's a huge crowd. There was some lady that touched him and got healed. I mean, there was all this stuff going on. and He's like, come on, come on. He got so nervous. And then finally the, the mourners and the wailers, and they all came and they said, eh, don't bother the teacher anymore. Your little girl's dead. And Jesus takes him by the hand and he looks him in the eye. Don't fear anymore. Just believe. We know at the end of the story is that his little daughter was raised from the dead. Nicodemus is going through these things in his mind. He's a smart man. He studied scripture. He knows it. He knows that God's way is not man's way. He knows that having faith in God is an important thing. He knows that following the law really doesn't mean anything unless there's some faith in that law. The law is nothing unless you have belief in that, who, that he who created the law. He knows these things. This would be like turning the key in a very deeply locked lock. Now the question is, do you believe Nicodemus? For God so loved the world. Why? Why? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Mm. In secret. At night, God sent His Son not to the people of Israel or to the surrounding Gentiles that would eventually hear the the message or to everyone throughout history. He didn't go to the Romans. He didn't go to any government. He didn't announce it as the new order of things. He comes at night in secret to your heart. Governments don't accept Jesus and be saved. Groups of people don't accept Jesus and are saved. Presbyterians, Methodists, Baptists, Catholics, they don't come to Jesus and are saved. Those, those groups of people. It's you. For God so loved the world, he came to your heart privately. So that if you believe, you won't perish but have eternal life. Of course your friends may think you're crazy. Lost your mind. Some may think that believing in Jesus is just foolishness. Waste of time. Some may want to set Jesus up as the ruler of, your, of our governments, Or try to elect people because they think they do or they don't match up with certain things. That's not what this message is about. This message is about you. It's about you and me and Nicodemus and everyone else who's ever heard the message. No one else can decide for you, do you believe? No one. No one can force you to truly believe. You have to do that yourself. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, and he who does not believe has been judged already, because he did not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light came into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes into the light, and even in the light those deeds are exposed that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God, even those things that seem to be not right, because he's covered it. He's covered it. Why did Jesus compare himself to the serpent? Why was that his image? Why was that the thing that he said? Why the serpent? Jesus is anything but a serpent. If you look at anything about Scripture, he was definitely not a serpent. Paul tried to explain this in Romans. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of, uh, of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. Second Corinthians also says this. In second Corinthians the fifth chapter. Verse 21. There, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that way might become the righteousness of God in him. The image of the serpent, the image of all that sin, the image of all that stuff, that's what Christ's role was, to take all that on. That we might, who believe in him, find righteousness. That's what that's about. As we go to a time of communion, I'm going to leave you with one last passage. By the way, I've said this before, I'll say it again. If you, only, if you can only save a couple of passages or only read a couple of passages or only study a couple, Romans eight and Hebrews 12. This is verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer of Hebrews because the Hebrews would know made reference to looking at the source of salvation. Fix our eyes on Jesus. Fix our eyes on Jesus. Don't fear anymore. Just believe. Don't have shame anymore. Just believe. Don't have pressure from the outside world anymore. Just believe. Don't worry about the government. Just believe. Don't worry about what anybody else is doing. Just believe. Don't worry about the sins that you've sinned. Just believe. Don't worry about the sins that you're sinning now. Just believe. Don't worry about the sins to come. Just believe. Just believe. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you come to us one at a time. One at a time. Lord, we pray for each heart that's here. The ones you're speaking to now and the ones that you will be speaking to and the ones you've spoken to for a long time. Lord, we ask that we remember that we believe and walk in you. Because you love the world so much you came to each one in it that they might know you. Some still reject. We know that's true. And some believe. We pray for those who are believing and will believe that they might have eternal life in you, that their sins will be forgiven and washed away because you've borne them yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you guys would come forward.